0: Concerns, let me know. Um, I do always, you know, scratch my head. If you could turn to First Corinthians nine for just a minute, First Corinthians nine, and we'll meet there together in a minute. Number nine together tonight. You know, as a pastor, um, as a preacher, I get to talk about tons of awkward things. Um, I get to preach against sins that, um, because of the nature of my position, I know someone is struggling with, and because I'm convinced to preach next chapter, next verse in the Bible, I've Preach it how it lays. I I try to do my best at that. Hopefully, that's pretty evident. Um, There are times that I preach messages that people think I know something and think I'm like directing a message at them, and I'm not. Uh, There's times where I preach a message, and in the same message, someone will say, I'm preaching too hard on a subject. And then uh, there will also be people, I've had this experience literally in the last two years that I'm preaching not hard enough on a certain subject, and, of course, the Bible itself has a lot of kind of awkward material, doesn't it? If you read your Old Testament, there's some, there's some pretty strange stories in there that have some, uh, you know, not to be irreverent, but some risque things going on. And as a pastor, you're supposed to explain what's going on in the text and what that means for us. There are whole books of the Bible that are awkward, right? Someday, I, it, this may not be everyone's cup of tea, but we're going to go through the Song of Solomon, Right? Uh, That's awkward at times. But tonight, what we get to do, and what I get to do, is I get to preach on what I would consider the creme de la creme of awkward topics for a pastor to preach on. Because tonight, I'm going to preach on principles for paying pastors. Principles for paying pastors, I want you to go back in your mind, many of you have been in church in a long time, and ask yourself, when was the last time you heard a sermon on pastoral pay? It's probably been a good while. Um, It's not really a topic that if someone is creating their own preaching calendar, they're going to gravitate to, but honestly, and and I'm not going to give you all the, the references, it's actually a topic that comes up quite a bit in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, if we start going back there. And even though this topic of pastoral pay has a pretty robust biblical background, I think we could all safely agree that the topic of pastoral pay can be ripe with controversy. It can be a topic in which there are disagreements about, right? Uh, Certainly, we all know that we can all disagree on how money should be spent sometimes. And certainly that's the case when it comes to pastoral pay. This topic can bring out concern. Are we paying enough? Are we doing enough? It can bring out curiosity, you know? What does he get paid? Or we should know what he gets paid, right? It could bring out contentment. We, we pay this person plenty. It can bring out controversy. Maybe we shouldn't pay that much. And here's what is amazing to me. And I hope, church, I hope you get an appreciation for this. I am not smart enough to schedule a sermon on pastoral pay on budget vote night. I'm not smart enough. I'm not organized enough. But here we are marching through First Corinthians. And though I don't think that this will be a controversial subject to most of you, I do think it's good for us as we just quite literally passed a budget, and it's no surprise, it's right there literally in black and white, that the largest budget item on our budget is my compensation, right? It's no salary. It's no surprise that that what I get paid and benefits and all of that, there's a lot that goes into that item, um, is the biggest chunk of our budget. And so we at least at times as a church have to revisit because it, I mean, it, When you see the numbers on paper, you got to ask, okay, is this a good investment or not? And that's not my decision to make, that's yours. But it's good for us to say, what does the Bible say about this? right? If we as a church are going to commission this church to spend X number of dollars on staff compensation that's set by the deacons, what is it that factors into that decision? And what is it that we should be keeping in our minds about what the Bible says about that topic. Because the truth of the matter is, it's really irrelevant what I think or what you think. What matters is what God thinks, right? Y'all, I feel really awkward preaching on this, and you're not helping me, okay? So can you give me like a smile or a nod or something? I'm just being, I'm just being real. I feel really awkward talking about this. But here's the, here's the subject of the message. What does the Bible say about paying pastors? That's a great thing we should talk about. It's a good thing we should talk about. Now, to be clear, if the fact that we're in this chapter by providence isn't convincing enough to you, I'll clear the air right now. I'm not preaching this to make any sort of statement. I have no agenda, okay? I'm not secretly hoping for some outcome from this message. I am just literally tasked with preaching 1 Corinthians 9, and this is the subject of 1 Corinthians 9. What does the Bible say about paying pastors? Now, if this subject is controversial today and could bring out different types of disagreements about this subject, then it shouldn't surprise us that 2,000 years ago, there was some controversy around this subject. Now what's interesting to me as I I did a little bit of a deeper dive on this, most often, at least in the comments I've heard around ministry growing up and all this about preachers, most often the type of criticism around this subject is people questioning the pay of a pastor. Is it legitimate to pay this person a full-time income to do this job? But what's interesting to me is that what Corinth is doing and what Paul is countering here is people, and you got to understand this to get the passage, people are upset that Paul didn't accept pay. Now that's strange, isn't it? I don't know, a single church in modern American history that would be mad about that. But here is Corinth, and they are upset because Paul, and they are questioning Paul, because he did not accept any sort of stipend or love offering or anything from them when it comes to doing pastoral work among them. Now, if you read the letter, and if you read even the first few verses of chapter 9, here's where all this is coming from. What is going on in the the church is that there is some real controversy, and Paul, you've seen, is dealing with some serious issues. And and so at 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 the root of all of this is people saying, well, hold up a second. What right does this guy have to tell us what to do? After all, if he's not a real apostle, then what does it matter what he says about our lifestyle? That's what's going on. Paul's been defending himself and his statements in a lot of different ways in the last couple of chapters, right? And here's the church of Corinth, no doubt. They're seeing Paul, who's taking both sides of the issue, like we talked about last week with this meat offered to idols thing. He's saying, well, it's not a bad thing to eat meat offered to idols, but, you know, you really shouldn't either. And they're looking at a guy like that. And can you imagine the congregation saying something like this in their mind? Well, a real apostle would pick a side. And then they're noticing this guy who is very different than the other apostles that came in among them, Peter and Barnabas and others who ministered in their town, who who did accept compensation and who did receive payment, and they're looking at the culture around them where philosophers and teachers and rabbis accepted payment, but they're looking at Paul and he's not accepting payment from the church for his services rendered. No, instead, he's working a very blue-collar job, making tents on the side And they're looking at Paul and they're saying this. This is quite literally what's going on. Well, if he was a real apostle, he wouldn't mind accepting payment. I wonder if he's not accepting payment because he doesn't see himself as a real apostle. Maybe they're worried that they're not um, getting as much time from Paul and he doesn't love the church as much because he's doing this other job on the side. So that's where our passage stems from, these type of concerns. And what Paul is going to do in our passage, this is how it breaks down. In verses one through six, he's gonna make some claims. He's gonna claim that he's a real apostle, and he's gonna claim, and he's gonna actually take the Corinthian side on the issue. He's gonna say that as an apostle or as a pastor, he deserves, he has the right, or as it's translated in our passage, he has the power to accept pay. And then the last part of the passage we'll read up to verse 14 is Paul then giving the reasons why he believes as an apostle or as a pastor, he has the right to pay. So let's read the text together tonight. First Corinthians nine, verses one through 14. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are ye in the Lord. My answer to them that examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and drink? And again, that word power could be translated right. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter, or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goes to warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof, or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he alt- altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he, this is speaking of a pastor, that ploweth and should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker. Of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And we'll revisit that more next time in First Corinthians. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Let's ask God's blessing on the message. Father, we pray that you'd be with us. Lord, particularly, this is is hard to preach on a subject because it directly involves me. Uh, But Lord, I pray that I could be as transparent with the word as possible, that I expose the meaning of the text and just uh, let this educate us a little bit tonight and and apply to our lives. And Lord, I pray that um, we would hear these words as God's words tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, Paul starts the passage by making two claims, okay? We'll spend very little time on the first one. Verses 1 through 2, what Paul does is he claims, he defends his claim as an apostle, he says, and he defends through a bunch of rhetorical questions, that he is indeed an apostle, which gives us, like I said earlier, the indication that Paul is, is butting up against some factions in the church that are questioning his legitimacy as an apostle. And if you're wondering if that's true or not, just read the second letter he writes to them. It's filled with this subject. They are, it turns really, really sour by the time he writes to them again. But he says that his qualifications to be an apostle are pretty clear, right? Verse number one says he has seen the Lord. That's a qualification of an apostle. By the way, that's why we don't call people apostles around here, right? I mean, there's apostolic patterns of ministry and things like that, but an apostle is somebody who's seen the Lord. And then Paul basically says his main second qualification as an apostle is the church of Corinth itself. He says, what qualifies me To be an apostle is the fact that you exist as a church. As an apostle, my job is to lay the foundation of the church. And here you are. You are the foundation that I laid. That's what he said in chapter number three, didn't he? And he says, if you're looking for evidence as to whether or not I'm an apostle, just look around. Because I started this church, and that is an indication of God's favor and blessing on my ministry. But he's doing that to get to the second point. Because in verses three through six... What we need to recognize is that all these rhetorical questions are making a point, and Paul is saying this. He is saying that as an apostle, he has a rightful claim to compensation. Now, again, what I said earlier is true. He didn't accept a dime. And so Paul is clarifying that this church, though they thought that maybe he was doubting his apostleship, because he wouldn't accept money. He said, no, it's actually the opposite. I'm quite sure I'm an apostle, and you should be too, and I'm quite sure that as an apostle, I deserve compensation, or any other apostle deserves compensation. He doesn't deny that apostles should do that, and he he stakes his claim with three different rhetorical questions. Verse number four, he says, do we not have a right or power to eat and drink? Now, we might think that he's referring to last chapter's topic of eating meat to offer to idols. And he's saying, do I have a right to eat meat offered to idols? But no, what he's saying here is he's saying as an apostle, as a pastor, I have a right to have my basic necessities met in this work, eating and drinking. He, he says in verse number five, I have a right to support a family. Quite literally, he, he's probably not talking about a sister or a wife, Literally, in the Greek, it's sister-wife. Now, that's not meaning what the TV shows make it mean. He talks about in chapter number seven that wives uh, should be another Christian, a sister in Christ. And so he's saying, do I not have a right as an apostle to not only have my needs compensated, verse number five is saying, I have a right for my work to be able to bring along a companion, a wife, though Paul wasn't married, and I think he's defending this right for other pastors or apostles like Peter who were married. He's saying, I have a right for their needs to be taken care of. You, you can't saddle me with the fact that, well, you're the only one doing the work, so we're just gonna pay you enough to put enough food in your mouth. He's saying, no, I have the right to bring someone along with me as a wife, as family. Verse number six, he says, and this is one you could always make fun of a pastor for, you know, he's not saying that pastoral work is not work, but what he's saying is that I have a right to set aside a secular occupation to pursue full-time pastoral work. That's what he's saying. He's saying Barnabas and I, we don't, we don't have to make tents. In fact, he's saying we have a right to do this work full-time. That's what he's saying in verse number six. Now, we might be tempted to think that this only applies to apostles. But what's interesting is that Paul, in his later writings, is gonna show that the same defense and logic he's gonna use to defend the right to pastoral compensation for an apostle, he's gonna use the same logic to defend the right to compensation for a normal, everyday pastor like Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 5 on the screen. It says this, let the elders, not apostles, let the elders, that's talking about the office of a pastor, that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That word honor is the word we get honorarium from. So it's a double measure of pay. Now, I'm not saying that means literally double pay, but it it is saying that this person deserves not just pay, but, but an honorary type of pay. And he says, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, which I think recognizes the fact that there are elders in the church who may not be main preaching elders. That there's a plurality of elders, and Paul's recognizing that those who have to set their life apart for preaching and doctrine are those who deserve compensation from the church. And then he says the same verse that he uses in this passage. For the scripture says, or saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward." And so while this passage may be dealing directly with apostolic compensation, we can all agree tonight that if I preached a message on that you should compensate apostles, that wouldn't really be helpful to you, would it? You wouldn't go home on Monday and say, well, ble- my heart was blessed by that sermon on, you know, if, if I ever go back 2,000 years, I should make sure I give a love offering to an apostle. No, that's not what this passage is about. Clearly, God has preserved his word so that we can deal with the topic of paying pastors. So the second half of the passage, here's what Paul's going to do. He staked his claim. He's saying, yes, I'm an apostle or a pastor, and yes, I agree with you, Corinth. Pastors have a right, have power to receive enough compensation to take care of their daily necessities and to take care of their family and to not have to dedicate themselves to a side hustle. That's what he's saying. And so what he's going to do in verses 7 through 14 is he's going to give us, if I remember right, four reasons, four principles, why pastors have a right to financial compensation. Here's the first one in verse number seven. Pastors have a right to financial compensation because it is normal for a full-time employee to be given full-time pay. Look at verse number seven. He speaks about full-time employees in different occupations. He gives three different careers. Look at this in verse number seven. Who goes to warfare anytime at his own charges? What occupation is he speaking of there? A soldier. He's saying, do soldiers sponsor themselves on the battlefield? Or do they receive compensation? Do they receive equipment? Do they receive guns and ammo. Now, if we're talking about the Revolutionary War, it's a little different story, right? Those guys, and that's why, by the way, Benedict Arnold betrayed his country. He was very angry about being under-resourced. But in in war, soldiers generally, at least in the Roman army that Paul is talking about, they were compensated. In fact, they were paid fairly well. And then he talks about a vineyard planter, a farmer, right? He says, "Do, do farmers eat of the fruit of their harvest? Do they receive financial compensation for what they do? Well, of course they do. And then he says that a shepherd, right, who feeds a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock. So not only is Paul saying this, not only is he saying that pastors as full-time employees deserve full-time pay, but he's saying that they should receive their pay ideally from their own harvest field. Are you seeing that? He says that the, the shepherd should eat the, or drink the milk of his flock. The farmer has a right to eat the fruit of his vineyard. Are you following me tonight? Tracking with me? Okay. So he's saying, here's the principle. He's saying, look at all these secular occupations. Where else in the world do we say, this is what Paul's saying, does somebody go to work full-time and not be given enough money to meet their needs on a full-time basis? He goes to a soldier and a shepherd and a farmer, and he says, hey, listen, these people have a rightful expectation. You know what he's saying? He's saying it's common sense. It's common sense to take care of a pastor. What, what I think is interesting about this, having been in the church world just a little bit, often here's what we're tempted to do, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that this is true of our church, but I think it's true of the church world at large. A lot of times, pastoral pay is decided based on different rules than secular pay. Meaning this, I, uh, you may not know this, but um, in my previous job, we, I, we totally restructured salaries and finances there. It was, a, it was a big overhaul. And thus I've had a couple of friends in ministry who've referred deacons or whatever to call me uh, for some advice, I just got a call two weeks ago about setting staff pay because we had to, we overhauled that in liberal. And that was kind of a project that I had to take up as an executive pastor, as an associate pastor. And, and what's, what's been interesting is um, as I talk to some of these folks in other churches, um, I'll, I'll ask them something like this Does your pastoral staff have health insurance? Well, no. Okay, so of your deacon committee, how many of those people have health insurance? Well, like all of them. Okay. Uh, Have you guys set a retirement benefit? Because they're asking me, you know, can you help us set this guy's or give us a suggestion or give us some resources to help decide this person's salary? We'll say, well, let's table the salary thing. Does your pastor have a retirement benefit? Do you care that he goes to retirement prepared and doesn't have to milk other churches to make sure he can feed his wife or feed himself in retirement? And they'll say, well, no, we don't have any retirement set up. Now, sometimes that's because of lack of means. But a lot of times it's because people think, well, this is on a, it's a separate type of job. But what Paul is saying is that when it comes to pastoral compensation, he says, just look at the secular world. It's not it's not a different thing. It's a full-time job, full-time job, right? And so here's what Paul is saying, is that we don't need to separate secular and spiritual work when it comes to this decision of compensation. If, If in the secular world, it's normal to have certain level of pay or certain benefits, then it should be normal in the other world as well. That could go to all sorts of things, right? I mean, we could just start naming off types of benefits, but but to say that pastoral pay is merely a common sense matter is not, is not to undervalue, Paul says, that it's a biblical issue too. Are we okay? It's not, it's not to say that this isn't a biblical topic because Paul then says in verses eight through 13 that the law, the Old Testament, taught that ministers should be compensated this breaks down kind of into two arguments. Verses 8 through 10, Paul quotes a section of the law in Deuteronomy 25.4. Look at it in verse number 9. He says that uh, the law commanded, don't muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Now, uh, you don't work with oxen, but you work with cows, right, Dennis? And the idea there is, is if you're using an ox to go pull a grain cart or something like that, that it would be inhumane that while that ox is literally working in the harvest field full pulling a grain cart, to put a muzzle over him so he couldn't, like, reach over and, you know, gnaw some grain, right? That's what he's saying. And and, and here's what Paul's doing. He's applying this, oddly enough, uh, a law that included animal rights in Deuteronomy 25. He's applying this law about animal rights. He's saying this, okay, as a pastor, we are working in a harvest field. That's what Paul says in verse number um, 10. He says, we are plowing like an ox does. We are threshing like an ox does. And he says that if we um, are plowing and threshing like an ox does, and an ox is entitled to compensation from the harvest field they're working, he's saying a pastor does as well. He's saying the law teaches this. The law teaches this. And then he goes, and, and he doesn't quote a direct verse, but he quotes a broad idea in the law about how temple ministers were compensated. Look at verse number 13. He says, those who minister, don't you know that those who minister about holy things are live of the things of the temple? Don't you know, he says in verse number 13, that those who wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Now, I know many of you are probably familiar with this, but in the Old Testament, it, just read through Leviticus. It'll clear up a lot of this. But you would bring, let's say, uh, a, you know, an ox, right? Or a lamb. Quite literally, there would be, other than certain offerings, that whole lamb, certain offerings, you'd burn the whole thing on the altar. That was seen as the most extravagant sacrifice. Uh, normal atonement sacrifices, the sin offering or the day of atonement, those were burnt offerings. They burnt the whole thing on the altar. But he says that there are a lot of other offerings. There are even offerings with grain, offerings with meat, offerings with drink. And what they would do is when they would bring those offerings to the temple, what what would the the temple minister do? Quite literally, he was commanded by God. If you read in Leviticus, it's a command from God to the, the Levite to eat that portion in fact, he says this, that not only should he eat of that portion, he doesn't say, well, you should eat of that portion because I feel sorry for you. No, what he says, he says, that portion is holy to the Lord. This is a big deal. So they would quite literally take that lamb, they would sacrifice part of it to God, and they would take that other part of it, and they themselves would eat of it. By the way, there was even an expiration date on it. He says, you need to to eat this thing, because God was against uh, greed and storing up and storing up and storing up. And so he said, you need to eat this thing. This needs to be your daily bread, your daily sustenance. They would bring unleavened bread as a sacrifice to the Lord. And part of that would be given to the priest who is waiting at the altar. Part of it would be given over to the Lord. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you read the Old Testament, the idea that ministers in God's house should be paid is all over it, right? They share in a portion of the fruits of the offerings. Now, I'm not saying this is, I'm glad we're not compensating your pastor like this, but quite literally the equivalent would be take up the offering plate, skim up a portion and give it to the minister. That's, that's essentially what was going on. That would be the Old Testament equivalent of it. He's taking a portion of what is brought in from the sacrifices. But here's what we need to recognize. We are not followers of the old covenant. We do not live under the old covenant. I'm not a levite. In case you're wondering, I'm not a priest. Although, you know, some other denominations want to call guys like me a priest, but that nonetheless I'm not a priest. And so that's why Paul says yes that applies here, but he says it's also really important that this is not just an old testament thing. Right, we're tempted to go there. Like, well, you know, in the New Testament, nobody was paid. No, no, no. What what Paul says next, he says, "Here's the here's the I think it's the third reason. The third reason pastors should be paid is because the Lord Jesus commanded it. So he says the law taught that ministers should be compensated, and Christ commanded that ministers should be compensated. That's in verse number fourteen. Even so hath the Lord ordained, and the force of that is commanded, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. They should get their living from the gospel. Now, the best I can tell, I think Paul's quoting Luke 7. I want you to see this on the screen here in a minute. But but here's what Jesus doesn't say, okay? Jesus is getting his disciples ready. He's commissioning uh, either his 12, I think in Luke, he's commissioning 72 of his followers to go out, they're not gonna be with him. They're gonna be doing their own ministry, okay? So he's sending them out. He's sending them out to, to preach the gospel. He's sending them out to do healing ministry, to cast out demons. And here's what Jesus says to these 72 guys who are quite literally ministering on behalf of a brand new religion Christianity. You know what Jesus says? He says, All right, boys, save up your pennies, okay? Save up your pennies. Maybe go take a loan out because we don't wanna ask anyone to give us money because we're preaching a free gospel. Is that what Jesus says? No, look at what Jesus says. This is striking to me. I didn't, I didn't really consider it from this angle. He tells them, he says, don't you dare carry a purse or scrip, or shoes and salute no man by the way. He's saying, don't bring your haul of your life savings. Into whatsoever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. What is he saying there? He's saying, look for somebody who's open to the message. And in that same house, what does he say? Remain. Stay there. Take up residence. Eating and drinking. Doesn't that remind us of verse number four? Have we not power to eat and drink? eating and drinking such things as they give. And here's what he says, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. And he says this, go not from house to house. The idea there is don't go around looking for better opportunities, right? Don't be someone who's like, well, let me hit up this house. Hey, this person, you know, they they look like they've got better means. So let me hang out there and see if the food's a little bit better and the guest house is a little bit nicer, right? He says, stay there but accept the shelter they give you, accept the, show, the, the, the offerings they give you, and accept the food and the drink they give you. So here's what's interesting about this. Man, I, I, I've wondered what it would have been like to be those guys. They're preaching a brand new message in a way. They're not teaching the law, really. They're preaching the gospel of Christ. And here they are, they're going out. They're not, uh, they're, they're going out, I'm preaching a message that's 2,000 years old. They were not Levites, and everyone there was used to paying Levites and letting Levites skim off the top But these guys, other than maybe one or two of the disciples, were not Levites. And here they are, and they're preaching this brand new message. They have no Old Testament right to compensation because they are not Levites, and yet Jesus tells them, don't bring your money with you. Depend on the provision I will provide for you through the people you're ministering to. That's striking to me. And here's what Paul says. If Jesus uttered those words, if Jesus wasn't bashful about his original disciples receiving compensation, he says, we don't, even me as an apostle, Paul says, I don't need to be bashful about receiving compensation for my work. So why should pastors, Paul says, be paid for their work. First, he says, because full-time work deserves full-time pay. He says, number two, because the law commanded that ministers should be compensated. And then number three, he said, our Lord has commanded it. Now, the best I can tell, there's probably two types of people in the crowd tonight. There's those who might be skeptical about compensation towards a pastor. Maybe you've had some bad experiences in your past or you have your own preconceived notions about that. Uh, you have some doubts maybe that our church should have a full-time pastor. I don't know. I, I, I trust that's probably not the majority here. Um, but number two group here might be a second category and you have no problem with it. You're like, duh, I believe that. It's in the Bible, no problems. Why is it a problem? It's not a problem. I'm not saying it's a problem. But I think what this passage does is what I just explained speaks to the first group. That the Bible has a background for the subject. But I think to that second group who's like, I, Pastor, I don't disagree with anything you just said. It's, it's obvious. It's in the Bible. It's not a surprise to anyone. Here's what I think I can give you some application ideas. For those of you who are like, amen to that. I, I want to encourage you to think about these application ideas. Okay. Here's number one. I want you to think about and embrace the strategic benefit of enabling a pastor to do full-time kingdom work. Now, I want to say this before I get into some of this application. It it can be real easy for you, because you may not know me as well as you think you do, to see what I'm about to say is self-serving. And I wanna let you know that what I'm about to say is farthest from that. I have no agenda. I have no need to be self-served because this church in many ways has done a lot of kind things for our family when it comes to compensation. They've been very fair. And I really, truly mean that. It's more uh, of an awareness in my mind than maybe you think is normal. But uh, forgive me, I'm a, a pessimistic person at times that there's a lot of things in life that I process through this filter. And our deacons have heard me say this, if they remember. Um, I often say something like this, if I were to drop dead tomorrow, because the reality is that is a possibility. Now I have no plans to drop dead tomorrow, but I wanna teach you church, because the reality exists that whether it's a year from now, because I dropped dead or 20 years from now, I won't be the dude who's your pastor or 40 years from now, I don't know. That reality exists in my ministry to you, in my heart truly, I want it to have fruit that, that abounds beyond my time here. And, and so I want to explain some of these things to you uh, because I want you to see this from a different light when it comes to anyone else who stands up here as the pastor. And again, I'm not at all thinking that you don't understand this, but I, I feel obligated to say it. So, number one, embrace the strategic benefit of enabling a pastor to do full time kingdom work. Now, I understand that there are some contexts where bivocational pastoral work has to be the norm. I thank God, by the way, for Robert and the years in which he did bivocational pastoral work. I'm not at all sliding that. I truly, I have quite literally seen the financial statements of the cash in the bank before he became the pastor and after he became the pastor and I'll say publicly that what he did for our church for 10 years and being bivocational, I am reaping the fruits from. That chapel is a fruit of that, okay? So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Paul actually is going to go on and say that he argues that he would rather be bivocational, and I'll get there next week, okay, or next time. But I would suggest that it's good for us, though we, we, you guys have been really privileged to have a very rare situation, and I I mean that, a rare situation, where someone is willing to do that and able to do that and the church is willing and able to do that, Um, I want to encourage you to think about that the norm, the norm when it comes to kingdom work, the normal way that churches have facilitated kingdom work for 2,000 years has been hiring a man out of the congregation. Generally, they're not hiring from outside. They're hiring it from their congregation, to full-time dedicate himself to the work of teaching and preaching the gospel. Now, um, Paul, in this passage, though he himself is is one who worked a job, he's not even going to argue that it was better to do that. He's only going to say that in the Corinthian context there's a reason he did that. But what he's going to do is in this passage is he's reintroducing the right to be paid, and he's leaving it to... Uh, The pastor, or maybe because of circumstances, for the congregation not to extend that right. And here's what I want to share with you, because you may not see this or know this or have thought about this. um, But as as I've been here, and I've again, this is my first pastoral job, I've often thought that even if I'm not the best pastor on planet Earth, or someone else is not the best pastor on planet Earth, there are some strategic benefits. Number one, here's what I've noticed: there is a benefit to someone being in the building regularly. You know, there's just a benefit. Buildings just decay, don't they? If, you don't, if you're not around them, you don't see them, there's a benefit to that. And I've seen that specifically with our building. We've had days where water got in the building and you know, I've thought, gosh, good thing I didn't take a vacation this week because I, no one would have seen the water for seven days. You know, that would have been a bad deal. Um, it's far easier. I think this is the number one benefit that's on my heart. It is far easier for you as a church to replace a pastor if he dies or leaves, if you can compensate someone full-time. I personally watched over the last year plus, congregations in our community, who because of a lack of participation in offerings and things like that, they lost their pastor and they cannot bring someone in who's able to dedicate their life to the ministry and they have not found somebody, still, year out. Can you imagine that? This church is really blessed. I don't know if our church has been without a pastor for more than just a few months in its history. Just a few. And what you see in a lot of these situations is they're without a pastor for a very, very long time. I would say in the same way, in the same way the Bible doesn't require for a church to have a building, we would all agree that a building is a strategic resource for the kingdom, right? It's presence in the community, Uh, the ease in which we can get ministry done because we have a permanent location. Praise God we don't set up and tear down every Sunday. I've done that twice, and I hate it. I'm so glad we don't do that here. In the same way that building is not necessary for kingdom work, but it is a strategic benefit, that is true, I think, of a full-time pastor. They're not required to be a real church or anything like that, but that is a strategic benefit, right? There's a strategic benefit when it's someone's job in the congregation or otherwise whose full-time job is to keep an eye out for the best interests of this place. Um, And here's what I found, even though I'm laboring in a a proportionally a much smaller church, it's a full-time job. Holy cow, full-time job. I don't know how you got it done, Robert, to be honest. Here's the second application. How do we apply this if we say, you know what, Pastor, I recognize the priority and the biblical principles behind pastoral compensation. Here's the second one. This is is a big one. I want to encourage you to give generously to enable our church to support a full-time pastor. I showed the congregation last week these numbers, and I I could show them to those of you who weren't here. Um, And I said this My number one financial goal for this church is to become, to have our church self supporting. And what I mean by that is able to handle the salary and benefits of a full time pastor. And I already explained to you the kingdom advantage of that. And why, some of us, what we might say is we might look around and say, This guy is out of his ever loving mind. What a greedy, Money-grabbing pig. He thinks that the people in this room can somehow support a full-time pastor. And I showed you last week that if, if just our engaged members, I'm talking about people who come to more than a service a week. Um, I had our, our treasurer take that number, how many of those have a job, and multiply it by a tithe based off of a very average salary. So the number of engaged members, I'm not talking to people who are members but come twice a month, engaged members who give a tithe, our ability to reduce support would drop by thousands and thousands of dollars overnight. And here's what that, that shows me. And I'm not saying this to, to bludgeon anybody. I, I, that's not my heart. I'm saying this to educate you because I think sometimes we're like, ah, we can't do it. We can't support a guy full-time. We can't get there. We can't be self-supporting. What I'm saying to you is this, Our church, the reason it's not self-supporting is not necessarily because of our size. It's because of our participation. And so what I wanna encourage you is if the Bible, think about this, there's not a lot of specific things the Bible tells you to spend your money on or to give your money to. I can only think of two things the Bible tells you to give your money to. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't give them to more, but only two that the Bible clearly says. And it's to ministering to the poor and the ministry of a church. And the number one thing that the Bible talks about when it comes to the ministry of church is not maintaining this. The number one thing the Bible talks about when it comes to the ministry uh, expenses of a church is compensating a pastor. And so here's how I want to challenge those of you who are givers, which I assume is everyone here, because why would you vote on a budget if you don't give to one, right? Is this, I want to encourage you to give because... If you were to participate in faithfully tithing, our church could become self-supporting literally overnight. And that would be a glorious thing. Some of you are like, we shouldn't, I, I wish we didn't accept outside support. Join the club. By the way, I'm not uncomfortable with that because the same guy who wrote this accepted outside support. But I also want to say this to those of you who do give a tithe, who do give generously, who do give sacrificially, which I suppose is probably a lot of you, I do want to say thank you. It it truly, there's not a week that goes by where it doesn't cross my mind. I'm able to do this because some people here and in one or two other churches care enough to give. No one's gonna come knock on their door and say, You you owe us this, right? Unlike some churches Mark was telling me about. No one's gonna come knock on your door and say, You owe our church this money. I promise you, I ain't doing that. You might think, Well, he shouldn't preach like that. Well, I'm 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 not going there where I knock on your door and tell you you need to give us. I just wanna say thank you. Praise God. That you're willing to give generously to allow our church to support someone. And I would hope, I would hope that, that that's a worthy investment. If it's not, please, please say goodbye to me. Kick me out the door. If you don't think that, I don't want to waste your money and your resources. Number three, consider the priority for church finances that this passage gives us. You know, as, as, as people in a church, we all kind of have our favorite part of the budget, don't we? We like Kids for Truth, we like this ministry, we like the building, we like this, we like that. And I've got my own favorites on the budget, okay? But here's what I want you to think about. If, if everything were to go crazy and, and the bottom were to fall out, there are very few things that the Bible says this is what a church should spend its money on, but this is one of them. And so I'm, I'm not saying we have to make this decision, but here's what I would challenge you with if our church has to choose between having a certain level of facilities or a pastor, what does the Bible say is the priority? If our church has to choose between funding this expensive outreach thing or a pastor, what does the Bible say is the priority? And yet so often we have our heart attached to other things that may not be at the top of that rank. We may have our heart attached to other uh, staff or whatever that should be compensated, or other services, right, that should be compensated. And yet the pa- the the Bible says that here's the number one way that a church spends its money. It's compensating a pastor. And then, of course, the other most commonly mentioned one is taking care of the poor. Number four, here's here's the next one. Proactively care for the financial well-being of pastors and ministry missionaries. And I mainly want to talk about missionaries here because I, I feel like our church has as done, done right by our family in this area. I do say this for the benefit of our missionaries because they too are doing full-time work that deserves full-time pay. Do we agree with that? I assume you do if you give to missions. And by the way, our missions giving this year has been fabulous. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But I say proactive because so often, you know, we forget that these mission they're living off this stuff. What a... You know, it's hard enough to be a pastor and live off the offerings of a church. Being a missionary is way harder, way harder. Because, you know, the first thing people drop is their missions giving, right? And, and so I think as a church, here's, here's how we're informed by this passage. If Paul's saying, hey, this is a big deal, this is in the Bible, we should be saying, let's, let's keep our eyes out for how we, we, we can be proactive about this right? Let's be proactive of how we can make sure that we raise our missionary support as costs go up. So we, we, we shouldn't be the church that has $100 or whatever to certain missionaries and say, well, we're never changing that. They, they got this support 30 years ago, and we're not changing it. Well, the value of the dollar has changed a whole lot over the years, has it not? I felt it in two years. Lord knows how much you feel it in 30 years, Right? And so as a church, you know, again, if if you find yourself in a place where you're making decisions about missionary compensation as a deacon or whatever in a business meeting, hey, we need to be proactive. And I want to say this, that as our missions giving is going up, yes, we may want to add missionaries, but I'm also really, really concerned about raising our support to our missionaries because it's expensive out there. It's expensive out there. And I'm really concerned, especially about those who have families and stuff um, because their costs are even more and they multiply. The increased cost multiplies for them. Here's the last one. Resist the temptation to unnecessarily accuse pastors of greed. And again, this is one of those application points that's really more for the, the situation in which I dropped dead, okay? Okay. It's not really because I feel like this is a problem. Now, I should say this. Greed is a serious issue. Quite literally, it disqualifies a pastor from ministry, doesn't it? 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. But here's what we need to recognize as a church. If the Bible argues for compensation for a pastor, a man should not be viewed as greedy if he advocates for that or asks about that. And here's where I'm coming from. Again, this may not be representative of your background, but I, I, I do wonder if I've, I've experienced this, that maybe this might be floating around some of y'all's heads. Um, and so I just want to throw it out there. I quite literally know of people who've candidated as a pastor to church. And here was, here was like a criteria, like uh, be blameless, be the husband and one wife. But if the man asks about a salary before he accepts the job, he's not allowed to take the job. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but that's a thing, right? And so here's what we need to recognize. When it comes to issues like this or when it comes to you know a pastor proactively advocating for uh, his pay, that's not greed. That's not the same because the Bible clearly teaches it, right? So Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, what does he do? He advocates, he makes a compelling case for the compensation of, of those who dedicate their lives to the service of God and his people. He shows that they're like a shepherd who should receive the fruits of their flock or a farmer who should receive the fruits of their labor. And in our modern context, this is what it reminds us of, that pastors, missionaries, they are not exempt from the basic needs of life. They have families to provide for, bills to pay, and the same earthly responsibilities as any other member of the community. And the Apostle Paul, by his own example, even though he did not receive compensation, he argues strongly to underscore the legitimacy of receiving financial support for full-time ministry. As we consider these principles, this is why we did this tonight, because this is not just a matter of practicality. This is an issue of obedience. It's an acknowledgement of the labor of those who invest in our lives. And again, I wanna say thank God for those who obediently give to the Lord. I truly, truly appreciate it. So here's what we should do. I want you to go forth this week with a mindset that's informed by God's word when it comes to how his kingdom money is used. Hands that give generously to the local church to allow us to do what God tells us to do with our money. And a heart that shows support and love for those who labor in the Word and Doctrine. Not just me, but we got missionaries we're hosting in February, and I just can't wait for you, church, to love on them and show them your support for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word tonight. I trust it's spoken. I, I pray, Lord, that you've been able to speak despite me being the one that, be the, that is the speaker. And uh, pray, God, that our hearts would be uh, informed and um, motivated, and then our hands, God, would move to action to give, as many have done throughout this year. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alrighty, Well, thank you so much, uh, church family.